Welcome to Yoga Chit Chat. I'm Phoebe Schiff, yoga teacher, amateur astrologer, and aspiring published author. And I'm Tarek Morinaga, yoga teacher, retired marketing analyst, and former yoga studio owner. Every week we meet virtually for an informal discussion on a common yoga philosophy, principle, or theme. Today's topic is the yamas, a Sanskrit term for rules of living or restraints. The yamas are the first limb of the Ashtanga yoga practice. Ashtanga yoga is an eight-limbed practice. Ashta means eight. Anga means limb. And there are eight steps or branches or limbs of this practice. The Ashtanga yoga practice comes from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which is a very classical yoga philosophy. And the classical yoga philosophy is, it's different from the tantric studies that Phoebe and I generally talk about on the podcast, but they are part of the tantric history and tantra is built upon the groundwork of classical yoga philosophy so although it's different we still honor the classical philosophy and it's a big part of what we study it's a big part of the evolution of tantra so we thought it would be nice to cover the the yamas they are integral to yoga philosophy in general, classical yoga, as well as uh, feeding into Tantra. So the eight limbs of yoga, we're just going to cover the first one today, which are the yamas. And as Phoebe said, the yamas are often, I think of as the restraints. So these are the, the do nots, if you will. And I think it's important to note that the intention of the eight limbs of yoga are really not necessarily to like be a good person. So even though we're going to outline five yamas or five restraints, things that we shouldn't do, the, the intention is not for each of us to be better people. The Ashtanga yoga system is the intention is not to somehow be nicer people. The intention really is to get to samadhi, which is um, a state of being. It's enlightenment. It is pure consciousness. It, it's the whole goal of yoga, of classical yoga. The goal of classical yoga, of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, is to reach samadhi the intention of the restraints is to get us to samadhi. So if you can do these things, if you can limit yourself and restrain yourself and follow the yamas, you have a better chance at reaching samadhi. You have a better chance of reaching the ultimate goal of yoga, according to classical yoga, this state of pure consciousness, this state of, we should kind of define like samadhi sometimes right yes a state of transcendence i like that you clarified that these rules or restraints are 
it's not really from an ethical perspective. It's not trying to get us to be nicer people, although that may be a byproduct and it probably will be a byproduct, but it's more about being the best yogi and being achieving a level of depth in your practice. And there's a slightly different intention there. It's, it's restraining from these five, what do we call these five tendencies of humans really in order to experience new depths of your practice. So let's go through them. The yamas are often organized in, in this particular order. I'm not actually sure how important it is that they're in order. The eight limbs of yoga, the yamas are always the ones that are mentioned first. So it goes yamas, niyamas, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, samadhi. Maybe we'll go through the rest of those at another time. But the, even the eight limbs of yoga are not necessarily meant to be done in order. Because if you are trying to get through the eight limbs, like climbing up a ladder, I think many of us would get stuck on that first step and we'd never make it to the top. So you can think of the eight limbs of yoga not as steps on a ladder, but like spokes on a wheel. And you can work on or practice any or all of the eight limbs. I think the same could probably be applied to the yamas. It's not like you have to do the yamas in order or you have to practice the yamas in order you can work on all of them at once, or you can work on one or two of them. But here's the order that they're generally laid out. At least this is the way they're laid out in the Yoga Sutras. It's Ahimsa, Satya, Asteya, Brahmacharya, Aparigraha. Ahimsa, Satya, Asteya, Brahmacharya, Aparigraha. And just really simply, the definitions are ahimsa is nonviolence, satya is truthfulness or not lying, asteya is not stealing, brahmacharya is abstinence or not having sex, and aparigraha is not being greedy or not clinging. And so these are sort of the, the do nots, if you will the things that we're limiting ourselves or trying not to do so that we have a better chance of reaching samadhi, reaching a state of higher consciousness. So starting with ahimsa, we can look at it from a very literal perspective and think, okay, well, I am embodying ahimsa by not causing harm to other people. I'm not physically injuring them. but I think it actually goes a lot deeper than that. And living in ahimsa means thinking through all of the ways that you can prevent creating suffering for others. And really, ultimately, this was the distinction that I got to in some of my reading. It's learning how to practice nonviolence with yourself. And that means not thinking negative thoughts about yourself which is very hard. <laughs> and so that's kind of the highest level. And then on a, a simpler level, it's bringing it to the mat 
it's being very kind and compassionate to, to people that you're practicing next to just as kind and compassionate as you are to yourself. If you fall out of a pose or accidentally swipe someone when you're in the middle of a sun salutation, was there, were there other parts of a hymn said that you wanted to share as well? I think that for some yogis, we can take this ahimsa practice to an extreme where it's nonviolence towards every living creature. If, if we want to take nonviolence all the way to, I'm not even willing to swat a fly or step on a spider or kill a cockroach, uh, that is nonviolence. I'm not willing to eat meat because that is harming the animal that I'm eating. That it maybe explains a little bit about why so many yogis are vegans. Uh, so many yogis are maybe unwilling to kill that bug that is crawling on their yoga mat. And, and that is one way of not harming. So nonviolence, we can also think of as non-harming. And that's great. That's one way of applying the practice. I don't know that I always take that tact. Um, I'm not a vegan. And I will step on a cockroach if I need to. <laughs> and you love your cheeseburgers. <laughs> <laughs> and I love cheeseburgers. So, um, but that is, that is one way to take this practice of ahimsa. And I do like that you mentioned on the mat, it is being kind to others, the person next to you and being kind. For many yoga students, we can, myself included, we can push ourselves to the point where we get injured or hurt and we probably shouldn't do that. We should probably only practice to a point where uh, we are being kind to ourselves. And I also like that you use the term kindness because instead of saying nonviolence, instead of thinking in terms of not being violent or not harming others, we could think about Ahimsa in terms of how can I be kind to others? How can I be good to others? How can I be good to the environment? How can I be good to animals? How can I be good to my dog? How can I be good to my neighbor, the person practicing next to me? It seems like a more positive way of thinking about Ahimsa to frame it as kindness or, or some other word like that than nonviolence. Agreed, because, you know, we can sit on our high horse and think, you know, well, I haven't slapped anyone today, so I'm not violent. But something I always think about is, and no judgment if you've ever done this, but like if you leave your shopping cart, just like in the middle of the parking lot, instead of bringing it back to the shopping cart tent or whatever, bringing it all the way back to the tent to me is an act of kindness and nonviolence because by leaving it in the middle of the parking lot, you you're, creating suffering for someone for cars for the person who has to push it all the way and so there are ways of practicing this in really small ways and it all comes down to you maybe just bringing that extra level of awareness to even the most mundane actions yes i love your example that's that's so good it reminds me and it, it also sort of calls back to being kind to the person next to you in the yoga studio. I think that you know, it has to be more than not slapping the next person right. in the right. yoga studio. It, being kind is one step farther. 
and I've seen so many students who are territorial about their space in the yoga studio to a degree where they will, you know, sigh under their breath or, or make a comment or side-eye the, the person who's too close to them in the studio instead of just being kind and making room for them. They're, they're not violent. Again, they're not hitting the person, but they're being a little rude and not being inviting and where they could be more kind. And I think that if they were kind, they probably have a better yoga practice and they probably get a little more out of it. They probably get a little bit closer to Samadhi, the state that they want to get to out of their yoga practice. If they were just a little kinder. Right. So Basically, by we said at the beginning, this isn't necessarily about being the intention isn't just to be a nice person. It's about getting you closer to samadhi. And I think that's an interesting framework to look at bringing more awareness to your actions because it, it gives you something to kind of work towards. So by being kind and compassionate to the person next to you, you're not only just, you know, you not only have the, the experience being nice and connecting with someone, but you also don't create karma that gets in the way of your path to samadhi so really the the results are are numerous and and really amazing the next yama is satya or truthfulness and sometimes i'll hear teachers call it not lying i do like that truthfulness is a more positive way to to look at it so i i like this one satya being truthful, being authentic are ways that I think about Satya as a yoga teacher. It's about presenting a practice that is coming from my heart and not making something up or, or offering something that's false. Yeah, this is my own interpretation of Satya, but to me, Satya is when intention and action come together and uh, I and to me um, when intention and action come together the result is manifestation what that looks like for me on the mat is doing the pose the second the teacher says it sometimes the teacher will say do a pose and I'll like sigh and drink some water and fix my hair and do a bunch of things to delay, which for me is really just kind of a, a micro manifestation of me doing something like that off the mat, like sighing and taking a drink of water and fixing my hair before sitting down to do a task that I've been putting off. And so Satya is, is intention and action coming together to facilitate manifestation which to me then is truth. Like you, you've brought something into truth and authenticity and into reality. As a student, I think Satya comes into play when I'm deciding how much effort I'm going to put into a pose. So a lot of times uh, I'll say, oh, well, I'm, I'm too tired to do that pose when really I know that I can do it. I'm just making an excuse. Being truthful, being honest about what we're able to do is a big part of the practice for me because 
oftentimes the teacher is asking me for more or less than I have to offer. And I think it's important for me to be honest with myself about what I really do have to offer. And it's something that I look for as a teacher when I'm teaching my students. I know what they can do. So when they push back sometimes, if, if I think that they're being true to themselves and, and authentic, then I'll, I'll let it go. But if I think that they're not being truthful with me, then I might push them a little bit to, to get them to that more authentic place. And really what you're pushing them to do is be truthful with themselves. Like they're reflecting their lack of truthfulness onto you by saying, I can't do this. And you're reflecting back, actually, that's an illusion. You aren't honoring your truth. And getting to that level of truth is requires a lot of consciousness and awareness. So that's why we practice. The third yama is asteya or non-stealing. How do you apply this one, Phoebe? Because I know that you're not a bank robber or a cat burglar, so you didn't so, you didn't know me years ago. So gold star for not stealing, right? But then how how do we make that more relatable? Because again, kind of like nonviolence, where we can say, okay, I didn't slap anyone today, so I didn't punch anyone today. So check box on the ahimsa. Well, I didn't rob a bank today, so check mark on the asteya. It doesn't work like that, right? So how can we look at the concept of asteya and apply it to the yoga practice? To me, the practice of non-stealing from a positive perspective is giving. What that looks like for me on the mat is breathing. So if I'm in a pose and I'm not breathing, you could think of that as kind of stealing potential. And so then by breathing, you're like, I almost think of breathing as like flooding your system with energy and giving the pose an opportunity to blossom by watering it through prana, through energy for the breath. And then off of the mat, it's giving, to me, it's, it's giving without attachment to receiving anything in return, like really giving for, for the joy of seeing someone else receive. How do you see Asteya on and off your mat? On the yoga mat, for me, it is being generous with your energy and your effort. When I'm being a good student, I am offering my full effort, 100% of, of my attention, of my effort. I'm working hard. I'm giving to the practice. I'm giving to myself. And I'm giving to the rest of the class and whoever happens to be the yoga teacher, my teacher. I'm offering my, my whole body, mind, and heart to yoga. I'm not holding back and I'm not taking or stealing the energy either. You may have been next to the person in the yoga room who's the 
what I call the yoga vampire. And they seem to suck the energy out of you because they're complaining or they're coming out of the pose, every pose way too early, even though they don't need to be coming out of the pose, they're stepping out of the pose. And energetically, they're taking from the class and the rest of the class has to give them energy and pull them along. I would rather be the person, personally, I'd rather be the person who is generous and giving my all to the class, to the teacher, to myself, and not taking. As a yoga teacher, uh, this, is, this is one of my pet peeves, actually, as a teacher. It drives me crazy when the yoga teacher doesn't show up on time. I feel that the yoga teacher is stealing my time. I make sure when I teach yoga that I am always there early. If I'm there one minute before class starts, I consider that late for me as a yoga teacher, even as a yoga student. When I go to class, when I teach a class, when I'm practicing, I make sure that I'm there 10, 15 minutes early because I'm being generous with my time for the rest of the class. And that's just, it's just the way that I feel about it. So being late, and by the way, I'm not the best when it comes to meeting for the podcast with you. Sometimes I'm a minute or two late. I'm often late to appointments. Uh, and I could do better at that where I'm stealing other people's time because I'm showing up a couple of minutes late. I really should be getting there earlier and being generous with my own time. Um, I'm pretty good at it when it comes to yoga. I need to get better at it when it comes to other stuff outside of yoga. Sounds like it'll take you a couple steps closer to samadhi. Yes. <laughs> All right, the next one is closely related. It's a parigraha, which is not being greedy. What were the definitions that you had for this, Phoebe? I had non-possessiveness, non-grasping, and then my own interpretation was like non-materialism. The other one that I hear a lot is non-attachment. Classic. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a big one. It's on the mat really simply. I think it's non-grasping of achieving the pose. So being present during the process, which comes up quite a bit. And then off the mat, it's similarly, it's not grasping at outcomes in life, which I can say from experience is much easier said than done. And it's in the same way that you learn to revel in the process of working on a pose it's reveling in the process of working toward a goal and being okay with whatever comes if you have the intention and action there trusting that it will lead you somewhere maybe not where you expected how do you conceptualize this on and off your map almost exactly the same baby i think of it the same way I think it's important, personally, I think it's important to have goals in yoga. I think it's silly to say that we shouldn't have goals because we all want to get better at yoga. We all want to 
get that handstand or be able to touch our toes or get rid of back pain. If, if yoga had no goals, then why do it? Right? So I feel that it's important to have goals. Some yoga teachers, yoga students might disagree with me, but I think goals are a fine thing to have in yoga. I have all kinds of goals for my own practice. The trick is to not get attached to the outcome. So I practice, I do my best, I give 100%, I put my whole effort into every practice, and if I don't get the handstand, or if my back still is a little tweaked, or if I'm not able to touch my toes, that's okay. I need to keep going in life, and be happy in life, and, and move on, and to, to be able to let go. And that to me is what a parigraha means. It's like, this is the let go, of attachment or let go of the goal, whether you achieved it or not. We can get stuck on an outcome, whether the outcome is, is good or bad, right? Just because we didn't achieve it doesn't make it any easier or more difficult to detach than if we did achieve it. Sometimes we, we hit the goal and we just get stuck on oh my gosh, I, I did this amazing thing and we can't let it go. So a parigraha to me is the, it's the let it go yama. Agreed. And going back to, I said non-grasping uh, earlier, and I have a visual that goes along with that. When you think of the physical act of grasping, like you, your hand is in a fist. And when your hand is in a fist, you can't receive anything. Like it's not, open to be able to receive and so when you are not grasping your hand is open and you are able to receive the pose or the promotion or whatever it is that you're working toward but you're not blocking it by making that fist that's a great visual so simple right so i just realized that i skipped brahmacharya maybe subconsciously i did that on purpose ah brahmacharya is probably the most challenging of the five yamas for me brahmacharya i think literally can be translated as something like complete focus on god brahmacharya can also be translated as abstinence or celibacy and again, remember that this is all within the context of how do we achieve samadhi? How do we achieve the highest state of consciousness? Well, stop having sex so that you can focus on clearing your mind. And that was the intention here. As we flash forward to today, we can take a more modern look at brahmacharya and think about brahmacharya as I think of it like the balance of energy. So I'm not wasting my efforts or I'm not wasting my energy, but I'm, I'm really finding a balance and being mindful with my efforts, with my energy. How do you think about this one? Yeah, the way I think of it is as moderating your senses or working toward freedom from your cravings. Sex being one of them, but also being in that category, things like eating, 
or drinking or things that we look at as vices. And in my mind, anything that you consider a vice is only a vice if you approach it with that intention or lack of intention, really. I think something is a vice if you consume it or do it unintentionally. And so brahmacharya is being in that place of indulging in everything with intention and then freeing yourself from from craving from wanting something and not giving it to yourself another definition i got was that it's overcoming the fear of death which really struck me because if i for some reason felt compelled to eat a bunch of chocolate in one sitting unconsciously it's kind of because I'm afraid of dying and not being able to eat enough chocolate before I die and that's really what I in reading that I realized is the is the motivation beyond a lot of compulsive behavior is like let me take in as much of this thing as possible because I might die and not be able to experience it so in surrendering to the fear of death you you're kind of freed from that compulsive behavior yeah i hadn't heard that particular definition but it does make a lot of sense the things that we overindulge in i think tend to be very physical in the moment activities that satisfy basic needs immediately they're not generally things that have a longer time horizon that we're we're thinking about in the future they're they're things that we're doing now like overeating right now or playing video games too long right now or doing whatever activity it is that's that's taking over our lives and somehow hurting us. So I really like that you define or sort of redefine a vice as, you know, anything can be a vice if it, if we do it to a point of harming ourselves. And then if we're doing it to a point of harming ourselves, then it's leading us that much closer to, to death. So it, that definition is, it's interesting. It's a, an extrapolation um, on brahmacharya in the, in the more classical sense. Right. And this brahmacharya, just to clarify, is not deprivation. It's, it's, it's putting intention behind the things that you desire. So deprivation gets into more of a, a Buddhist type philosophy and and this is more still fulfilling the things that you desire with intention, with intention. and mindfulness behind and, it. Yeah, I agree. And balance. Which is which is liberating because it means you can still eat chocolate and have sex and you know, maybe spend a little time on social media in this life and still maybe be en route to samadhi, or maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> and still be en route to Samadhi. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> wow, we made it through all five. 
I, I feel like we could have spent the entire episode on any of the five, but um, it's a great sort of casual introduction to the Yamas and how they can help us to find balance in life and get us closer to our goals in yoga, whatever those actually happen to be. And I think that they're great practices to think about both on and off of the mat. Agreed. There's so much in each one of these. And what I really like about them, and I I loved getting ready for this episode because these are a really nice little blueprint or checklist for how to live a little bit better. And sometimes it can feel really overwhelming to, you know, kind of get your stuff together if you feel like you're out of alignment. And these are these really nice, subtle reminders of of how to get a little bit closer to samadhi, yes, and also just closer to enjoying your days a little bit more deeply. We would love to hear about how you incorporate the yamas into your practice and into your life. Um, please visit our website, www.yogachitchat.com. You will find different ways of communicating with us. Um, you can check us out on Instagram at yoga.chit.chat. If you feel called to support us with a small donation, you can visit our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash yoga chit chat. And then if you want to learn just a little bit more about the concepts that we talk about, we have blogs up and other resources available. Did I miss anything? That's almost everything. Sounds good. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone.